It's really great to see everyone here. And uh, so th- this morning we are starting a new series, uh, working our way through the book of Daniel. And they're, they're going to be 10, or at the moment it's looking like there's going to be 10 sermons which will be coming, out, coming in the coming weeks and months. But before we start, we've actually got a little video we wanted to show just to give a, a broad overview of Daniel. So uh, if you guys are ready, and if we could have someone turn the lights down a bit, that would be brilliant, and we will watch that. The book of Daniel. The story set right after Babylon's first attack on Jerusalem, and they had plundered the city and its temple and taken a wave of Israelites into exile. Among them were four men from the royal family of David, Daniel, whose later name Belteshazzar, and his three friends, who you probably know by their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This book tells of their struggles to maintain hope in the land of their conquerors. The book's design seems pretty simple at first. Chapters 1 through 6 contain stories about Daniel and his friends in Babylon, while chapters 7 through 12 contain the visions of Daniel about the future. But this two-part shape is made even more interesting by another design feature, and that's the book's language. It begins in Hebrew, the language of the Israelites, but chapters 2 through 7 are written in Aramaic, a cousin language to Hebrew spoken widely among the ancient empires. But then in chapters 8 through 12, it goes back to Hebrew. This design shows how chapters 2 through 7 are a coherent section, but it also highlights the importance of chapters 2 and 7 for understanding the later chapters of the book. Let's just dive in. Chapter 1 introduces the basic tension of the first half of the book. Daniel and his friends, they're really wise and capable, and they're recruited to serve in the royal palace of Babylon. But they're pressured to give up their Jewish identity by living and eating like Babylonians and violating the Jewish food laws found in the Torah. So they refuse, and they choose faithfulness to the Torah, and it puts them in danger. But God delivers them, and they end up being elevated by the king of Babylon. After this begins the Aramaic section, which you'll see has this really cool symmetrical design. So first, the king of Babylon has a dream that, it turns out, only Daniel is able to interpret. It's about a huge statue made of four types of metal, and it symbolizes a sequence of kingdoms, and the head is Babylon. But then a huge rock comes flying in, and it shatters the statue, and it becomes this huge mountain. Now, this dream is the first of many symbolic visions in the book, and this one introduces the basic storyline of them all. Daniel says that the statue represents a train of human kingdoms following from Babylon, and they will all fill God's world with violence. But one day, God's kingdom will come and will confront and humble the arrogant kingdoms of this world and fill the world with the healing justice of God's reign and rule. After this, chapter 3 tells the famous story of Daniel's three friends who refused to bow down and worship a huge idol statue, which, like the statue in chapter 2, represents the king and his imperial power. And so the friends are persecuted, they're thrown into a fiery furnace, but God delivers them from death, and they're exalted by the king who now acknowledges their God as the true one. After this come a pair of stories about two Babylonian kings, the father, Nebuchadnezzar, and then his son, Belshazzar. They're both filled with pride because of their imperial power, and so, like in chapter 2, God warns them both through dreams and then visions, which, also like chapter 2, only Daniel can interpret. He says that both kings are to humble themselves before God, and both kings arrogantly resist. So Nebuchadnezzar is stricken with madness. He becomes like a beast in the field. But then he humbles himself before God, and his humanity returns to him. He's restored as king. 
This is in contrast with his son, Belshazzar, who doesn't humble himself before God, and he's assassinated that very night. Now, these two stories draw this imagery from Genesis chapters 1 and 2 and Psalm 8, where humans are depicted as the royal image of God. He's given them authority to rule over the beasts of the field and the birds of the air on behalf of God, who is the world's true king. But when human kingdoms forget that, when they rebel and make themselves and their power into a god, they become less than human, like violent beasts who will face God's justice. Which brings us to chapter 6, the pair of chapter 3. And this time it's Daniel who's being persecuted because he refuses to pray and worship the king as a god. And so like the friends, he's sentenced to death and he's thrown into a lion's den. But God delivers him from the beasts and like the friends, the king exalts Daniel and praises his god. Which brings us to chapter 7. It's the pair of chapter 2 and the center of the book where all its themes come together. It's another dream, but it's Daniel's this time. And ironically, he can't understand the dream until an angelic messenger explains it to him. He sees a series of four beasts, one like a lion, then like a bear, then one like a winged leopard, each of these symbolizing an arrogant kingdom. And last of all is a super beast identified as a really evil empire, and it has lots of horns, a common symbol for kings in the Old Testament. And there's one specific horn who is an image of an arrogant king who exalts himself above God and persecutes God's people. Now they are symbolized by a figure called the Son of man, who's an image for both God's covenant people, but also for their king from the line of David. But then all of a sudden, God, who's called the Ancient of Days, comes and he sets up his throne. He destroys the super beast and he exalts the Son of Man on the clouds where he comes up to sit at God's right hand and share in God's rule over the nations. We can look back now and see how all of these stories in the first half fit together. The three stories of faithfulness despite persecution, these are meant to offer hope to God's suffering people among the nations. But they suffer because human kingdoms have rebelled against God and have become beasts. And so these visions encourage patience, that God's people are to wait for him to bring his kingdom and rule over our world and vindicate his suffering people. But it raises the question about when God is going to do that, and that's what these final three visions set out to explore. In chapter 8, Daniel has another vision about the final two beasts of chapter 7, but this time they're symbolized by a ram, who we're told is an image of the empire of the Medes and Persians, and then by a goat, who's an image of ancient Greece. And out of the goat come a whole bunch of horns, one of which symbolizes the evil king from chapter 7. And we're told more about him, that he will attack Jerusalem and exalt himself above God and defile the temple with idols. However, in the end, he will be destroyed by God who will exalt his people and his kingdom. Now, by chapter 9, Daniel is very puzzled, especially as to when all of this is going to take place. And so he consults the scroll of the prophet Jeremiah, where God said that Israel's exile would only last 70 years. So for Daniel, the 70 years is almost up. And so he asks God to fulfill his promise soon. But an angel comes and informs him that Israel's sin and rebellion has continued. And so their time of exile and oppression will continue on seven times longer than Jeremiah envisioned. Daniel is deeply disturbed by this, and he has one final vision. We're shown the same sequence of kingdoms. It's Persia, then Greece, and Alexander the Great, followed by lesser kings, all leading up to this final king of the north, who will invade Jerusalem, set up idols in the temple, and exalt himself above God. But then, all of a sudden, this king comes to ruin.
Now, there's been endless debate about what all of these visions refer to. Many see a clear connection to the exploits of the Syrian king Antiochus in the 160s BC. He killed many faithful Jews in Jerusalem and set up idols in the temple. Others think it points forward to the Roman Empire's role in the execution of Jesus and the destruction of Jerusalem in the temple in AD 70. And still others think it will be fulfilled in future events that have yet to happen when Jesus will return. Now the problem is that the symbols and the numbers, they don't quite match any of these views perfectly. But it opens up the possibility that in a sense they are all right. The book of Daniel has been designed to offer hope to all future generations of God's people. It did so in the days of Antiochus' empire, and it has ever since. This is why Jesus could use imagery from Daniel to describe and confront the oppressive leaders he confronted in Jerusalem. This is why John, the visionary who wrote the Revelation, could adapt Daniel's visions and apply them to Rome of his day and also all future oppressive empires. And so the point of Daniel is that all generations of readers can find here a pattern and a promise. It's a pattern that human beings in their kingdoms become violent beasts when they glorify their own power, when they redefine right and wrong, and don't acknowledge God as their true king. But Daniel also holds out a promise that one day God will confront the beast. He will rescue his world and his people by bringing his kingdom over all nations. And so for every generation, this book speaks a message of hope that should motivate faithfulness. And that's what the book of Daniel is all about. Absolutely. So there you go. Is it very clear or is it as clear as mud? I don't know. (laughs) The idea is that as we look through this, we'll try and obviously reveal more of that and enable us to grasp a hold of the, the truths uh, within this very interesting book. So, why have we chosen to look at uh, the book of Daniel? Well, there are so many different things that can be pulled out of Daniel, but some of the key things that we're hoping to address in the coming weeks is that you know, to look at God's sovereignty, that he is Lord of all. It talks about how Daniel and his friends were faithful to God, and so we're going to be looking at how we are faithful to God. There's also understanding and dealing with prophecy. How God rewards faithfulness. It looks at the, the subjects of humility and pride. And it talks about rejecting idols and worshipping God alone. Just amongst a few things, you know, there. So you can see that actually there's lots of stuff we're going to be able to pull out of this and look at. So let's start Daniel chapter 1. And I'm going to read the, the whole chapter. So if you'd like to turn in your Bible to that... If, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. 
These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years and after that they were to enter the king's service. Among these were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for, for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now God had caused the official to show favour and sympathy to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men of your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them in, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about, about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Let's pray. Father God, we've, we've just been reading your word. I pray for your Holy Spirit to now uh, illuminate it to our hearts, Lord. We, we know that your word is, uh, is good for us, that it builds us up, it sustains us spiritually. And so, Lord, I pray that uh, as I'm speaking, actually, your voice would be heard in the hearts of people here, Lord, that they would receive what you have for them. And that as they, when they leave this place, they will find themselves closer to you, more able to know what's on your heart, and just more like Jesus, Lord. Amen. Okay. So, we're at the start of Daniel, and 
I feel that it's really important that we look at the background to this book. You know, if we weren't to look at the background, we could look and start at verse 1, where it talks about uh, Nebuchadnezzar coming and taking Jerusalem and how God just handed it over. We could conclude from just from verse 1, if we don't know the background to all of this, it could suggest that God is weak, that Nebuchadnezzar was so strong that God had to yield to Nebuchadnezzar. It could suggest to us that God is unloving. He just didn't care about his people. Just go and take them. Or it could even suggest that God had no influence or no particular control over the kingdoms of the the peoples of the earth. And yet we who know our Bibles know that isn't the case. But how do we know that? It's because we have to look at the background. We have to look at the history before we look at singular verses. And so it's just a reminder really that when we do read through our Bibles, we need to be aware of the background. We need to be aware of the culture. We need to be aware that, you know, it may not be all that it seems at first glance. And we need to dig deep and make sure we know what God wants to tell us from it. So, I'm going to start, actually, 800 years earlier than Daniel, all the way back in Egypt. And we find the uh, nation of Israel is in slavery in Egypt. But they are still God's people. And they cry out to God. And through Moses, God saves the nation of Israel from Egypt. He takes them out of slavery and brings them into freedom through a demonstration of his power. He reveals his concern for them. He reveals his love for them. He reveals his desire to see them free in, from Egypt. And then having been taken from Egypt, he, God gives them laws and rules to live by. He sets them up as a nation with, uh, you know, so that they have uh, rules to live by, so how they live together, how they worship God, how they present themselves to God. But out of that, there is, a, in Deuteronomy chapter 28, God uh, gives them some warnings. So, he's, so if you, we haven't got time now to read through Deuteronomy 28, but it starts with a load of Blessings. So God says, if you do this, if you follow uh, what I've said to you, what I've commanded, if you worship me, if you put me first, I'm going to bless every single aspect of your life. I'm going to bless the ground. I'm going to bless you, you know, the children you have, the, the uh, animals you have. I'm going to protect you from your enemies. In fact, you're going to scatter your enemies. You know, wonderful blessings covering all aspects of their lives if they were willing to be obedient and worship God and God alone. But then as it goes through uh, Deuteronomy chapter 28, then God goes, okay, but this is what will happen if you disobey. This is what will happen if you chase after foreign gods that you don't put me first. And it, there, there's two verses I just want to read really here. Verses 38 Oh, sorry, 36 and 37. So this is the warning. This is the curse. This is what will happen if you are disobedient and you 
God says, the Lord will drive you and the king you and the king you set over you to a nation unknown to you or your fathers. There you will worship other gods, gods of wood and stone. You will become a thing of horror and an object of scorn and ridicule to all the nations where the Lord will drive you. And so all the way back here, having uh, saved this, this people, this, the nation of Israel from Israel, God gives them a warning. There's blessing, but if you, if you ignore me, if you, if you leave uh, and do what you want to do, if you chase after foreign gods, then eventually you're going to end up being uh, destroyed and taken to a foreign nation. And so, as I said, this was 800 years before Daniel, and then so begins a process, really, where the, uh, the nation of Israel uh, pushes into God and does well for a relative short periods of time, and then it, it gradually pulls away. They, they sin, they break God's rules, they, they pick up with other gods, they, they include other nations instead of uh, pushing them back. And they, they, then God kind of brings these curses to them, but only in small ways. So they, they suffer, but not the catastrophe that's told about in Deuteronomy here. And then they cry out to God, and God sends uh, at first judges and then kings. He sends prophets, and he, he uh, calls them back. You know, he forgives them again and again, and this process goes on and on. And after about 400 years, we arrive approximately to the king of David. And uh, David uh, is known as a man after God's heart. And this is kind of the high point of the nation of Israel. They, they, they conquer the lands around them. They, they are uh, you know, seeking God well, as it were. And they are blessed. God blesses them and blesses them. He scatters their enemies. He increases their lands. He, you know, they're, they're, they, he sends the rains. The blessings of Deuteronomy are kind of at a high point here with uh, the King David. And then, having halfway between the two, Solomon, David's son, becomes king. And you may remember Solomon as the, the man of great wisdom and also a man after God's own heart at first. But you may, may or may not know that as he goes through his life, he turns to foreign gods. He turns away from God. He erects altars and shrines and idols to foreign gods. And so one generation after the high point of Israel, of David, the man after God's own heart, Solomon, who starts so well, it all goes downhill. And so what happens is the, the nation splits. There's a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. God keeps a remnant in the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom very quick or relatively quickly heads off to other gods and God scatters them to the nations. And the, so the, the northern kingdom is... is uh, deported and so God still keeps a remnant in the southern kingdom but it's deteriorating you know, they are turning to other gods the, the, the people have put altars to other gods in the temple of God himself they get to a point where they are sacrificing their own children to foreign gods 
in the fire. And God still, he keeps sending the prophets. He keeps trying to call his people back. He keeps raising up good kings which bring the nation back a time. And even a generation before Daniel, a king, Josiah, is raised up who the the Bible tells us was like David. He got rid of all of the idols, all the shrines, all the altars. He brought Israel back to God, but it still wasn't enough because the very next king took them all the way back down again and God had had enough. Even at this time though, God had sent prophets. There were still prophets. You may think, where were the prophets? There was Jeremiah. There's a whole book on Jeremiah's prophecies. Zephaniah. And I've completely lost my place in the notes. But uh, a prophetess called Halda. So even at this dire point... In the nation of Judah's history, God is still sending his prophets. But as if you were to read through the book of Jeremiah, you see, would see how they were treated, how they were cast out, they were put in prison, how they were ignored. God's word rejected. God himself rejected. And so... This brings us then over that 800 period from the high point at David to the very lowest of low at Daniel. Judah has just been conquered by Egypt. You think, well, we're we're going to be looking at the Babylonians. No, they have just been conquered by Egypt. But then Egypt is then destroyed by Babylon. And so, at the start of Daniel, Judah has been, uh, as it were, under the control of, of Egypt. But now we read in the first few verses that Babylon comes and besieges Judah. So we've got a nation now who has been... I, I, not rejected by God, but actually placed under a curse, the curses of Deuteronomy by God. He's had enough. But even now, God is still with them to a point. You might say, well, how is that? If you were to read through uh, the history here, which is seen in two kings in the last three or four chapters, what you'll see is that God didn't completely obliterate the nation of Judah at this point. What he did was he gave them over to uh, Babylon, but only a small number were taken away, and the rest remained. So this leads me on then to what are the Babylonians up to? So at this time then, the Assyrian nation has been uh, the powerhouse and they have been, uh, they have weakened. Egypt themselves were a powerhouse, they have been weakened. And so the Babylonians rise up to become the new powerhouse of the the world um, that we're looking at at the time. 
They want to conquer nations. They want to expand their borders like so many powerhouse um, nations do. But they, at first, seem to have a, a, a different plan from what you might think. They don't just dive in and plunder and destroy all the nations. But what it appears at first they do, and this is apparent from how they uh, invade Judah, is, yes, they bring a defeat, they come and besiege, but then, as we read in Daniel, what they do is they take away the social elite, the, uh, the royalty from the nation that they are uh, overcoming. And so the, we see this is what is happening in Daniel. So the Babylonians have besieged Jerusalem, the capital of Judah, and they have then seized the, the social elite. And they also, at this time, take away some of the, uh, uh, the vessels from God's temples. So God's temple. So they do this, firstly, to strengthen Babylon itself. So the, the elite have been taken back to Babylon to be indoctrinated, to build up the nation of Babylonia. And so they would have been doing this across the nations that they conquered. But also it would have weakened the nation that they are conquering. They took some of the vessels from the Lord's temple. Where did they take them? They took them back and put them in the temple of their own God. And this was kind of like a declaration to the, the nation, so the Jewish people. Your God is weak, our God is strong. Look what we've done. But then they leave the remainder of the people in the land to tend it, to look after it, and therefore to be able to uh, give taxes, to give duty to Babylon, so that actually what they've got is a, an enlarging kingdom, but it's a productive kingdom, because actually a kingdom where everything is ravaged by war and burnt up isn't a particularly great big kingdom, is it? So th- there we have it. This is, what the, this is at the point in Daniel now we see what the Babylonians have done. Okay, <clears throat> so the reality then for those who had been taken from Jerusalem to Babylon is this, in a sense. They were to be protected. No longer were they to be in fear of being conquered because actually they were now part of the biggest, strongest nation. So in a sense, there was a protection there. They were free from fear. Interestingly, they had just come from a siege. So they were probably, at at best, very hungry and quite possibly starving. And so, actually, they get taken away. Here's lots of lovely foods for you to, to eat. So there was plenty of good food and drink. Potentially, it was a... You know, going from a backwater like Jerusalem to a a new kingdom. Now, obviously, I'm talking about lots of nations here that were being conquered. So many of these people would be could quite well have been coming from very small towns or cities in other nations. They come to Babylon and suddenly, wow, this is incredible. So there's there's two sides to look at it. Potentially, 
they were being offered great status. And for those who had no qualms of worshipping other gods, there were plenty of other gods to worship. So, you have to ask at this point, is what's happening to Daniel and his friends good or bad? See, for some nations, this may have felt like the promised land for the reasons I've just said. Even for some of the Jews, the reason that God had rejected them was because they were already serving foreign gods. So there's the potential for some of them, well, this is no different from where I came from. But what about Daniel and his friends? Because that is obviously not what we read in the first chapter of Daniel. Firstly, we don't know whether this was a wake-up call for Daniel and his friends. We don't know whether they were party to serving some of the foreign gods when they were back in Jerusalem. So it could have been that having been dragged away from the temple of God, dragged away from the nation, their own nation from their own land, that this was a complete wake-up call. It's like, wow, we've been completely wrong. Or it may be that they had been truly devout followers of Yahweh, of God, when they'd been in Jerusalem. We don't know that. But what we do know is that they faced a choice. To put it in in black and white, really, they were being called to finally reject God, Yahweh, their God. They were being called to break the very first commandment God gave them. You shall have no other gods before me. And their choice was stick with God or have the easy life in Babylon. Sticking with God, there was the potential for struggle and strife and contention. Leaving God behind it would appear life could have been very easy and simple. So let's just now press in a little bit to what they were facing. Interestingly, as soon as they've arrived, we've given a little bit of information of who they probably are. They are young men, they are social elite, but their names are changed. Their previous names would have directed people back to God. You know, so Daniel, the, the L was referencing to God. Each name that they had, Jewish name, referenced back to God. But their new names that were given them referenced Babylonian gods. They reminded them of who potentially was in control in that land, these Babylonian gods. They were going to be taught... The ways of Babylon, including all the mystical arts, that was what was lined up for them. And they were to eat from the king's table. Out of all those things, you might think, well, eating of the king's table was probably the, the least evil out of all these things. But again, this is background. The belief of the Jews was that the food and drink that was taken to the king's table had been offered 
to idols first. And so for, the, for them to eat this was actually, again, breaking God's rules. They were, in, in effect, would be sinning before God and rejecting him by accepting these, this food offered to idols. Now, so at this point, it, makes, you know, I, I, it brings a smile to my face because having been a young man in the past... I realise that young men have the potential of putting both feet in it and getting into trouble very quickly when they, may, you know, when they tend to want to stand up for their rights or their beliefs. They have a tendency, or can have, to go in all guns blazing. You can't change my name. I'm not studying that. And I'm definitely not eating that. The result, potentially, as you can imagine, would be no heads left on their shoulders. But here we see a godly wisdom. They offer a test. Not of themselves, but of God. It is their first stand against Babylon... And they put their dependence totally in God. They basically say, right, we, don't want, we, we want to eat vegetables and drink water. And we believe our God will come through that we will be more healthy than all these other folk on the richest of foods. We're, and as it were, we're putting ourselves on the line by testing God. And if he doesn't come through, okay. Who knows? Maybe they would have turned from him. But that's not to the point. The point is that God does come through. They stood up for their belief in God. They put God to the test. And God comes through. They find favour with the guard. They are wise in their choices and they are healthier than the rest. And what is the result of these young men trusting God? They were rewarded, and we see that in the last few verses of Daniel 1. How were they rewarded? Well, they're not taken back to Jerusalem and left there to go about their own devices. No. But what they do receive is they receive wisdom. More wisdom from God. They are blessed by God. They receive good standing in this new nation. And God uses them in many, many different ways. So four young men dragged away to a foreign land who put God first, despite everything else, and God blesses them. So, what is the application? It was interesting that on Friday night, my son Thomas came back from uh, having a, a time with some friends, and one of the points that apparently they had been discussing, if I can get this right, was whether the Old Testament is relevant today. 
What relevance is the Old Testament? Is it out of date? Well, we are reading the Old Testament. Let's see what we can gain from this. First point. God is in full control. He didn't lose control when Nebuchadnezzar attacked. He had already said it was going to happen. In fact, it says in our first couple of verses, God handed the the Jerusalem over. God is always in control. He wasn't weaker than the gods of Babylon, although he allowed some of the Um, The vessels in his temple to be taken, he also kept or uh, maintained the actual temple and the, the main vessel still there so people could still return to him. He continually loves and cares for his people despite their disobedience. God still wanted to bring them back, to be with them, to not leave them or forsake them. Even in a foreign land, God was faithful. And so we should be reminded that he is unchanging. He is in complete control through the good and the bad. He can be trusted. Next point then, God rewards the faithful. Even in the most difficult of places, God is there for those who seek him, those who put him first. He rewards faithfulness to himself. But it doesn't always come with life being easier. Sometimes he rewards us in the difficult circumstances. He equips us for the difficult circumstances. He doesn't always take us out of the difficult circumstances. In fact, sometimes his reward is greater service. Might even be more trials, but he always comes through. I've got one final point. I believe... For me, at least, this is the one uh, I'd like to everyone to hang on to the most in one sense. Daniel and his friends were clearly in a foreign land. They had been brought up in Judah, lived in Jerusalem, and now they've been dragged to Babylon, a foreign land. Their names had been changed. The food they were expected to eat was different. And the gods were different. For them, it was a clear and obvious choice. Accept the Babylonian way, as in the way of the world, their world at that time, or seek God's way. 
So you may be wondering, well, what's all this about foreign lands? Surely we live in a land that we were brought up in. I just want to read very quickly a few verses of Scripture. Firstly, John 17, verses 14 to 16. This is Jesus praying to the Father for his disciples and for all those that would come after them, so i.e. us. Jesus said, verse 14, I have given them your word and the world has hated them for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. I know time's pressing on, so I'll just throw out a few more verses for you to jot down if you want to read them later. Philippians chapter 3, verses 18 to midway through verse 20. And 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1a, if you like, the first part, and also verse 17. They all talk about how we, the children of God, those who accepted Jesus as Saviour, are living in a world that is not our own, a foreign land. In essence, if you are a Christian, this is a foreign land. Our land is the kingdom of heaven. We are strangers in this land. Daniel and his friends knew they were in their, this a foreign land. They put their lives on the line to resist the world they found themselves in. If we believe what Jesus and Paul in Philippians and Peter in 1 Peter said about the fact we live in a foreign land, how do we live our lives? How should we approach each day? I would suggest a few things here. Firstly and foremost, we must seek to honour God first. Not go off after any other God. And that doesn't have to be a shaped little idol. That could be money or status or whatever. We must seek God to honour God first. Secondly, we must remember God is in control. Thirdly, seek godly wisdom in how you resist this foreign world that you are in. Fourthly, we should consider the world's way carefully. We should compare it to Scripture. Daniel looked at Scripture that said, don't eat this food, don't serve other gods. He followed Scripture. We need to know our Scriptures. We need to see what the culture is potentially saying and say, does this line up with Scripture? No, then I'm not having it. 
Don't assume that culture is correct. The ways of the world can seem good at first glance, just like Babylon potentially did. But it will draw you away from God. And then finally, know that God rewards those who are faithful to him. But it's not necessarily with an easier life. God is faithful through all the trouble, all areas of our lives. Let's trust him just as Daniel and his friends did. Amen. I'm just going to close in prayer. I know we've gone over time a bit. but uh, Father, you give us your word, your scriptures, so that we are able to glean more about you. You reveal them more of yourself to us. They build us up, they sustain us, and they encourage us. And Lord, I pray as we go through uh, the book of Daniel... We will see some wonderful truths coming out of this. That you are a faithful God, even in times of trouble. That you never leave us or forsake us. We will see that you call us to be faithful to you. And to put you first and foremost in our lives. And Lord, I just pray that you would enable us to see clearly your guiding day in, day out for us in as we are strangers in this world, Lord. Help us through the leading of your spirit, Lord, and encourage us to press into you. Amen. Thank you, folks. So refreshments through the door. Don't forget encounter tonight at 7 o'clock. If you've got children downstairs, please go and collect them. And if you would uh, value prayer, you'd like to, or to chat through anything, please come forward. We'll be... More than happy to uh, spend some time with you. Thank you.